From the Wisconsin DNR, this is Wild Wisconsin, bringing you inside voices on Wisconsin's outdoors. Welcome back to another episode of Wild Wisconsin Off the Record. I'm your host, Katie Grant. After World War II, fishing and resort-based tourism was beginning to boom in northern Wisconsin, specifically near Boulder Junction. At the same time, the Wisconsin Conservation Commission, which is now known as the DNR, recognized a need to better understand the fish population in the area. In 1946, they established what was then known as the Five Lakes Research Project across, well, five lakes in the area. It utilized special licenses and reports from all anglers on these lakes to gain data and test the impact of various regulations and stocking practices. Flash forward to 2021, and we are celebrating the 75th anniversary of this groundbreaking research area. Over the years, over 243,000 anglers have fished the shores of just Escanaba Lake, accounting for over 1 million hours of angling effort. It's now known as the Northern Highlands Fisheries Research Area. Greg Sass has been the lead researcher there for half a decade. Sit back and listen in as we talk with him about how the research here is used, how it has evolved over the years, and what he hopes to see over its next 25 years. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Greg. We are very excited to talk about the Northern Highland fishery area and its upcoming anniversary. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Well, thanks so much for having me, Katie. It's exciting to talk about uh, the 75th anniversary of the Northern Highland Fishery Research Area coming up. Uh, my name is Greg Sass, and I'm Fisheries Research Team Leader in the Wisconsin DNR Office of Applied Science. And my role within the agency is to uh, lead our group of fisheries research scientists, biologists, and technicians to address high priority fisheries research needs for our fisheries management program um, and other program partners. So um, I help to facilitate that program. Um, I oversee and direct the Northern Highland Fishery Research Area program. And then we work extensively uh, with university partners and our stakeholders and tribal partners um, as well to conduct research to benefit the fisheries of Wisconsin and beyond. We've both mentioned the Northern Highland Fishery Area. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and why it was established? Absolutely. The Northern Highland Fishery Research Area um, was established in 1946 by the Wisconsin Conservation Commission at the time, which is now, of course, our Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Um, and at that time in Northern Wisconsin, um, the tourist-based and, and fishing resort-based economy was just starting to pick up, and we didn't have a tremendous amount of information about our fisheries in this part of the state. And in listening to anglers and stakeholders, our, our anglers were concerned about stunting in fish populations. And stunting is basically um, slow growth and, and low size structure or a lot of small fish in a population. And in response to that, the Wisconsin Conservation Commission uh, set aside five lakes in Vilas County near Boulder Junction to use as experimental fisheries research lakes. And at that time, to address the question of stunting in fish populations, the default regulation on all five lakes was that there would be no size limit, no bag limit, and no closed season on any species unless specified for research purposes. And so um, the, the lakes were set aside initially to uh, look at a test. We're going to allow um, as much harvest of any size and of any fish species uh, without any closed seasons to see how those fish populations responded. 
Um, in addition to that, the the five lakes were chosen to be representative of the lakes in the area. So um, Vilas County has about 1300 lakes and they're, they're very diverse from clear to uh, very tannic, meaning that the water's slightly stained brown um, to deep, to small, to large. And so uh, the five lakes that were selected kind of represent that gradient with Escanaba Lake uh, being a drainage lake with high fish species diversity. Pallet Nebish Lake being what we call our classic kettle lakes where an ice block was left in the landscape from a glacier. So they're deeper and they're clear um, and relatively unproductive. And then we have two sphagnum bog lakes, which are kind of more of our wetlandly lakes with darker water color in uh, Mystery Lake and Spruce Lake. Can you just kind of clarify a little bit because I don't understand necessarily the different kinds of lakes. You mentioned that the Kettle Lake is is left from the glacier. Can you talk a little bit more about the other two? So when I talk about Escanaba Lake being a drainage lake, it means that it has an inflow and an outflow. And so uh, the inflow to Escanaba Lake comes from Spruce and Mystery Lake um, into the lake. And then the lake flows out um, to Lost Canoe Lake. And so that's what we mean with drainage lakes. Uh, for Pallet and Nebish, when I say it was an ice block left in the landscape, these are lakes that are, um, their lake levels are dominated by precipitation. So when we have high levels of precipitation over time, the lake levels are going to be higher. Um, when we have a drought like we did in the early 2000s up here, those lake levels are going to be lower uh, because the water table is lower from precipitation. And with our sphagnum bog lakes, these are lakes that are surrounded by lowland areas uh, with vegetation like spruce, uh, leatherleaf, uh, wild cranberry. They're more of our wetland sort of lakes. And with that wetland influence, uh, they tend to have a a tea or a coffee stained color water. And that's what I mean when I say tannic. The main purpose of the fishery area is really research, right? Can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects that have happened there over the years? Absolutely. Like I mentioned early on, the initial regulations were set up to um, see about stunting in fish populations and how um, high exploitation or a lack of regulation would influence that. But over time, there's been a number of different research projects that have been conducted on the lakes that have had um, you know, pretty fair significance and importance. I would say, you know, first of all, um, what we might not have realized that at that time was that by um, and I should have mentioned this previously, that we have a compulsory krill survey in all five of these research lakes. And so any angler that wishes to fish one of the five lakes has to check in and fill out a free permit at the Escanaba Lake Research Station prior to fishing one of the lakes. Uh, they go out fishing and when they get done, they're then required to check back out at the station and report certain things about their catch. Um, and so this data set has been incredibly important to us um, and the fact that it allows us to calculate angler effort, harvest rates, catch rates. And then what I was getting to initially um, in responding to the research, it also allows us to calculate an exploitation rate or how much of that fish population was removed in a given year. And so those exploitation rate research has been really important for managing fisheries in Wisconsin and beyond because it's allowed us to um, address what might be a, a sustainable exploitation rate for a population. Uh, so for example, for some of our walleye regulations right now, um, Escanaba Lake showed that and an average exploitation rate over time of 35% of the adult population was sustainable. And so that's the same exploitation uh, limit reference point we use for um, many of the lakes in Northern Wisconsin right now. Um, same thing in our joint tribal um, and, and angling muscalunge fishery where that limit reference point exploitation rate is 27%. 
Um, on top of that, um, some of the other key research has been conducted. We've, um, or I should say my predecessors have developed um, indices to um, go from a relative abundance estimate of walleye recruitment up to lake wide densities. We've tested a number of different regulations on the lakes before they might be um, implemented more broadly throughout the state. Uh, for example, minimum length limits on Northern Pike, which occurred on Escanaba Lake. Uh, we've had various smallmouth bass regulations on Nebish and on Pallet Lakes um, that often end up in our fisheries management toolboxes for certain purposes. And then um, more recently, you know, a number of different studies where Escanaba Lake has served as a reference lake um, to other whole lake studies that we've done. Um, and so those are just some of the examples of the, the many ways that we've used the lakes for research. And I would have done on, on top of that, that um, many undergraduate and graduate students have also used the lake for um, their thesis and dissertation research, uh, covering a wide range of topics, uh, ranging from things like um, genetic influences and in smallmouth bass nesting and reproduction to influences of regulations um, and for many purposes. And so uh, we also have a pretty strong presence um, educationally with graduate students using the lakes to address research questions as well. Yeah, lots of great information coming into you guys. So you mentioned those uh, angler creel surveys where, where those who go out fishing on these lakes have to come back and, and kind of report back. What sort of information do you get from anglers on the lake? When an angler comes like I said, they have to check in or required to check in at the Escanaba Lake check station. It's right at the Escanaba Lake boat launch. Um, there, uh, my team of creel clerks and research scientists, biologists, technicians there uh, will check the anglers in. Uh, when they come in, uh, they have to fill out their name and their address um, and a bit of demographic information about gender and, uh, and age range and what lake they're going to be fishing. Um, so we give them the top copy of the permit, which says that they checked in as required and they take that with them while fishing. And when they get done fishing, um, the things that we collect when they report out are things like the amount of hours they fished on the lake, uh, what kind of bait they might've been using live artificial or a combination of both. We asked them what kind of methods they were using. Were they fishing from the boat shore? Um, were they ice fishing and, uh, or were they just casting or trolling or motor trolling, those sorts of questions. And then we get into some other important information. Um, one is harvest information. So any fish that are harvested by the anglers, we get the length, the weight, uh, the sex of that fish, and then we also pull an aging structure from all of them. We also look for marks on the fish, and this might be a thing like a fin clip or a floy tag or a pit tag, uh, because this allows us to calculate an exploitation rate based on our other surveys and through an equation in doing so. And I will add that most recently, one of the, the interesting things that we've observed at the Northern Han Fishery Research Area is the prevalence of catch and release um, over time, and that more anglers are catching and releasing fish than they used to. And so this is an area where for most species, you can harvest as many as you want, um, but despite that, we've seen major changes in the catch and release ethic, particularly towards largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, and muskie over time. And so in the initial design of the krill survey and the information collected, we would lose all that information because we were only getting information from harvested fishes. Now we also ask anglers to tally uh, within size range by species, um, 
fish that they might have caught and released. And so we implemented this about five years ago, and it's been a very important data set for us to capture not only what's coming through the creel survey um, that is harvested, but also fish that are caught and released. And so it gives us information about the size structure of the population and additional catch rates. You mentioned that, you know, this research, uh, the data we have available has been used by graduate and undergraduate students. You know, it's it's informed things that we do here at, at the DNR in Wisconsin, but also beyond. Can you talk a little bit about why the data set is so important from a research perspective, both here for Wisconsin and uh, outside of Wisconsin as well? Yeah, another great question. I think it really lies in the strength of being such a long time series. And so we have 75 years of continuous data uh, from the Northern Highland Fishery Research Area, or we will on June uh, 20th here um, this month. Uh, That's when the first permit was issued in 1946. And I'll quote Secretary Cole here on a visit from a couple of years ago, he came up to visit the field station and said, 75 years is a long time for anything. And so we agree, but in the fisheries world, having a time series of data uh, from these five lakes for 75 years is pretty much unprecedented. Um, To my knowledge, there's only one other small field station in South Central Illinois that has a data set this long, and that's from Ridge Lake. Um, So we're really unique here in Wisconsin, anywhere around the world to have uh, this amount of continuous data to use. And long-term data um, obviously is difficult to acquire. It takes a long time, it's expensive, it requires a lot of effort, but it's also incredibly important for being able to monitor fisheries and changes that may occur in those fisheries over time. And so I think that's one of the greatest strengths and why we've been able to do so much with this data set and also, you know, contribute with others with data requests that they might have to help them in their research. Um, And so I think really long-term data is something that um, most agencies or places don't have that we do um, that really sets us apart and makes this data set even more important. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've learned from the data set uh, in a little bit here, but one of the things that, uh, I thought was really fascinating about uh, what you guys are able to do and, and what that data is used for um, is that it it actually helped influence the uh, Seeded Territory of Wisconsin Walleye Management Plan. What role did the research area play in that Seeded Territory of Wisconsin Walleye Management Plan and kind of how how has that information been used specifically for that? That's another great question. And the Northern Highland Fishery Research Area, particularly Escanaba Lake, played a, a very significant role in the management plan that we're currently using in the Ceded Territory of Wisconsin, which is about a northern, the northern third of the state. And so um, as a little background, in, in the treaties of 1837 and 1842, um, Ojibwe Native Americans ceded uh, two large chunks of land in northern Wisconsin to the federal government, which would later become uh, the state of Wisconsin. And in those treaties, the Ojibwe Native Americans um, were allowed to hunt, fish, and gather in off-reservation lands as a part of those. And for a long time, those treaty rights were really not acknowledged. uh, But in the early 1980s, uh, through the Voigt case, those treaty rights to hunt, fish, and gather in off-reservation lands in the Territory of Wisconsin Wisconsin were affirmed. And so um, tribal spearfishing for walleye in the spring um, was back again um, as allowed by those treaties. And so um, what it set up was the challenge of now 
uh, managing a joint fishery for walleye that is a travel spearfisher and a recreational angling fishery. And at that time as an agency, we really only had walleye data on some of our best walleye populations. We didn't have a standardized monitoring program. And so um, establishing a management plan that would be sustainable um, given the joint fishery um, was a challenge. Uh, but we had Escanaba Lake, which at that time had 40 years or so of or yeah, 40, 30, 40 years of data or so on walleye harvest from Escanaba Lake and exploitation rates during that time. And so during that time when the walleye management plan was being developed and standardized uh, by 1990, the average sustainable exploitation rate for walleye in Escanaba Lake was 35%. And that's still what is used today as the limit reference point in our ceded territory of walleye fisheries. And when I say limit reference point is it it's not a target to hit 35% for every walleye population. It's the, the maximum allowable, so to speak. And so now we use that 35% and the management plan was set up not to achieve that or not to exceed it, except in one in 40 cases. And so most cases, the way our walleye management plan is set up, uh, primarily based on the Escanaba data and observations from that individual population is that um, our exploitation rates range in the oh, 12 to 14% or so annually between the recreational and the tribal fishery. And so that information that was collected in the long-term on wildlife population abundances and recruitment in Escanaba Lake was primarily the backdrop in establishing the current wildlife management plan used today. Um, although as we've gained more information from Escanaba Lake and other wildlife populations in Northern Wisconsin, uh, we often look to that now um, to help us make tweaks within the management plan when necessary. You've mentioned a couple of times that, you know, the, the fishery research area is really important for getting that data set, but it's also important for us to try out regulations and, and learn what the effects of those regulations may be. What have we learned from the current walleye regulation on Escanaba Lake? You know, starting in 1946, we had no close season, no bag limit or no size limit on walleye on Escanaba Lake. And that regulation ran the same up until 2003. And my predecessor at the station uh, before me, uh, decided that we we're going to go in completely the opposite direction and essentially eliminate harvest of walleye to see how that walleye population responded. And so in 2003, uh, we went from no close season, no bag limit, no size limit for walleye in Escanaba Lake to a 28 inch minimum length limit in a daily bag of one fish on Escanaba Lake. And since 2003, um, there's not been a single walleye legally harvested from the lake in the recreational fishery, although there's been a little bit of tribal harvest in there. And what we've learned from that regulation, I think, are a couple things most importantly. Um, you know, one, uh, we saw the abundance of adult walleyes jump up a little bit, which would be to expected given the lack of harvest. Um, but we didn't see major growth responses um, to that elimination of harvest. And I think that's simply because there's a lot more mouths to feed out there in the lake right now. And so fish aren't growing maybe as fast as they used to. Uh, we also, with those growth rates going down, have seen um, a little bit of a delay in maturation um, compared to what we saw uh, before the regulation. And we've also seen low and stable recruitment and so reproduction of young fishes and so 
we had much more booms and busts uh, in recruitment of walleye when it was more heavily exploited under low exploitation. Uh, we've kind of just seen low and stable recruitment, which is very different from what we observed previously. And we reason that that's likely just an unexploitation effect such that there's already a lot of mouths to feed in the lake. So there's also a lot of competition. And so um, we don't see a higher level of recruitment like we do um, under exploitation. In many ways, Escanaba Lake right now is um, acting like relatively unexploited walleye fisheries in other places, for example, Canadian Shield Lakes. We have a lot of fish in the inch range out there, uh, but we don't see a lot of uh, very large individuals just because of the sheer number of fish in the population. Technically speaking, walleye could be harvested. It's just that there's that length uh, minimum that needs to be met and they just haven't been growing big enough and being caught if they are uh, to be able to be legally harvested, right? That's correct. And so we just, we don't have a lot of large fish in the population. In fact, uh, we haven't seen her in a couple of years in our spring surveys, but um, the only walleye that we've had since 2003 that succeeded 28 inches is Floytag number 2110. And it's a female that's just over 28 inches, uh, but she's definitely an anomaly and, and may have passed on um, or senesced by now because we haven't seen her a couple of years in, in our nets. Basically what we've seen, yes, walleyes, you know, anglers can harvest walleyes that are greater than 28 inches. They're just not present in the population. So when does that uh, kind of experimental regulation end and what is the proposed new regulation? So the, the current regulation will end starting next summer on the second Saturday in June. And so we've learned what we think we're going to learn from this lack of exploitation and the response of the Escanaba Lake walleye population to it. And so now uh, we're going to go in a different direction. We've seen some natural re re recruitment issues on some of our walleye lakes in Northern Wisconsin over time. We also have some evidence that because of those natural recruitment declines that there could be some production over harvest of walleyes, which basically means that uh, you know, we're continuing to fish them, but we're just not getting um, as many fish being pr produced to replace them. And so um, we're gonna test a pr production over harvest experiment on Escanaba Lake. That new experiment and regulation will be what I'll call our seeded territory default regulation for walleye, which will be a 15 inch minimum length limit a 20 to 24 inch protected no harvest slot length limit with a daily bag limit of three fish with only one fish allowed over 24 inches. And so this is a regulation that was implemented on many seeded territory of Wisconsin lakes several years ago. And this regulation will all also allow us to test um, sort of influences of, of that regulation. But more importantly, is that within that regulation, we'll be establishing an annual quota in pounds of walleyes that we would like to have removed from Escanaba Lake to test the production over harvest question. So we'll do our spring surveys. We'll annually establish that harvest quota. And then on June 15th, or I'm sorry, the second Saturday in June, um, anglers will then be allowed to um, harvest that walleye quota. Um, and when that quota is met for the year, then the walleye fishery will close on, on Escanaba until the following second Saturday in June. Um, I'll also mention that uh, we'll have a tribal component to this as long as the uh, uh, tribal members declare the lake for spring spearfishing. So this is another important component of the experiment uh, that will be um, removed from that annual harvest quota 
um, to meet our goals. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting, uh, you know, demonstration of the fact that these are in fact research lakes. It's not that you've learned any, or you've, you found anything good or bad necessarily to cause the regulation change. The regulation change is really just these lakes are for research. You've gotten the data sets that you need to be able to, you know, infer the information that you you know, we're looking for or prove your hypothesis. And, and now it's time to try something new. Exactly. And so, um, you know, these are research lakes and research lakes are somewhat hard to come by, but every regulation change or experiment that we try on a, or, or some sort of manipulation we try on a lake is an experiment that we can learn important things from. And so, uh, you know, we're excited about this next regulation change and this next experiment. Uh, we think it's going to help us to inform walleye management um, in Wisconsin and, and teach us some new things. And um, that's that's really what it's all about is, is using these experiments uh, to sustain fisheries and having these uh, research lakes established to do that uh, because it allows us to make science-based decision-making. So obviously the last 75 years have been really productive in terms of research. You've gotten that giant data set what do you hope to see happen uh, within the research area over the next 25 years? Well, first, I'd say I just appreciate the agencies and uh, the Sport Fish Restoration Program from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the continual support of the agency. You know, 75 years is a long time for everything, uh, for anything, but it requires support and you know adequate funding um, to do that. And so um, I'd just like to acknowledge those sources there and, and thanks for the continued support. And I hope that continues for the next 25 years and, and the next 100 years after that um, as we continue to maintain this data set. Um, Looking forward, um, I think, you know, some of our, our main goals or, or one of mine for sure is that early on in our time series, um, we didn't collect a lot of non-fisheries related data. And so things like water quality or what's happening on the landscape or in the watershed. And so um, we've implemented some broader sampling in order to get those water quality, quality characteristics, look at habitat within the lakes and then also within the watersheds and even more um, regionally um, so that we can take a more holistic approach at what might be influencing our fish populations overall. And so um, if anything, over the next 25 years, I look forward to continuing to not only leverage the great data set that we have at the Northern Holland Fishery Research Area, uh, but take a more ecosystem-based approach um, along with social economic and social ecological approaches um, to help us understand our fisheries now and how they might respond to uh, various changes, perturbations, disturbances in the future, and then how we can use that for um, applying management actions in Wisconsin for other fisheries and beyond. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fantastic thing to note is that, you know, so much of that data set is just the fish and, and not that over overarching uh, kind of ecosystem perspective. I'm excited to see what you guys are able to to make happen there in terms of uh, kind of further expanding that research. It's very exciting time for the station right now. I mean, not only is the 75th anniversary this year, um, you know, but also mentioned just the the network that we as a station are involved with. There's a lot of different scientific entities in uh, in this region and throughout the state. And again, in some of our partners across the Midwest um, that we've been able to tap into. And it just creates this large network. For example, we do a lot of collaboration with UW-Madison Center for Limnology, which is just a trout lake, which is only a few miles from the Northern Holland Fishery Research Area. 
they're linked into another long-term ecological research program, which has 40 plus years of data now. Um, so we partner with them very frequently. Um, we work within our, with our partners within the agency, of course, we're working with the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, which has some longer term data and, and outstanding biologists and scientists. Um, the University of Notre Dame has a research center that's very near um, to the to the area up here, just across the border in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, and we're also partners, partnering with some private entities that have allowed us to do research on their lakes to help them achieve some of their management goals and address our research goals. And so the future is very, very bright. And uh, we continue to be thankful for these partnerships and everyone that's engaging in these broader collaborations because it allows us to do things um, that are bigger and, and very relevant for uh, fisheries management, aquatic ecological research, and, and just you know clean water across the landscape up here. Um, so it's 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 really amazing to be a part of. Is there anything else that we might not have talked about that you want us to know about the Northern Highland Fisheries Research Area? I think the last thing is is come come pay us a visit. You know, most much of the data we collect and the things that we're able to do are are collected by the anglers themselves. And so the compulsory krill survey and all the great information that we've been able to collect over the 75 years wouldn't be possible if we didn't have anglers fishing the lakes. Have a question about the research being done here at the Wisconsin DNR? Email us, dnrpodcasts at wisconsin.gov, and we'll work with our experts to get you an answer. You've been listening to Wild Wisconsin, a podcast brought to you by the Wisconsin DNR. For more great episodes, listen and subscribe to Wild Wisconsin wherever you get your podcasts.